Our speaker this afternoon is Adol Penser, who is regarded as the world's foremost authority on crime, mystery, and suspense fiction. He founded the Mysterious Press in 1975, which he sold to Warner Books in 89, and then he reacquired the imprint in 2010, and now publishes original books as an imprint at Grove Atlantic. Mr. Pensler serves for served for 17 years as publisher of the Armchair Detective, the Edgar-winning quarterly journal devoted to the study of mystery and suspense fiction. He currently has imprints at Grove Atlantic in the United States and Head of Zeus in the UK, publishing such authors as Thomas H. Cook, Andrew Kavlin, Thomas Perry, and Charles McCarry. Mr. Pelsner is most prolific editor. His editorial achievements include 15 vintage crime Black Lizard anthologies, including the Black Lizard Big Book of Locked Room Mysteries, the Big Book of Jack the Ripper, and Zombies, Zombies, Zombies. <laughs> Since 1997, he has been the series editor of the Best American Mystery Stories of the Year at Houghton Mifflin Harcourt. And earlier this year, he released Biblio Mysteries, Stories of Crime in the World of Books and Bookstores with Pegasus Books. Mr. Pensler also has won two Edgar Awards for the Encyclopedia of Mystery and Detection in 1977 and the lineup in 2010. The Mystery Writers of America awarded him the prestigious Ellery Queen Award in 1994 and the Raven in, excuse me, in 2003. Mr. Pensler is also proprietor of the Mistress Bookshop in New York City. <clears throat> Excuse me. This afternoon, he will speak about his new anthology, The Big Book of Rogues and Villains, which brings together the most cunning, ruthless, and brilliant cr criminals in mystery fiction. Please join me in welcoming Otto Pensler to the Boston Athenaeum. Ah, good afternoon. It's uh, nice to be in Boston. I owe Boston a lot. Uh, I started by doing the uh, Best American Mystery Stories of the Year 22 years ago, and the first guest editor was uh, Robert B. Parker, and uh, it made the bestseller list in uh, the Boston papers. Uh, so I always have a warm spot in my heart for, for Boston and for the dear departed uh, Bob Parker. Uh, we're going to talk about rogues and villains today, uh, a subject dear to my heart, being a bit of a rogue from time to time, as all of you are too. Even if you don't act on it, in, inside you have a touch of roguishness, roguishness, roguish, ro roguery, <laughs> uh, whether you admit it or not. Uh, the mystery genre is uh, is a is a broad field. It's uh, uh, I like to define it as uh, any uh, work of fiction in which a crime or the threat of a crime is integral to the uh, plot or the theme of the book. Uh, what we normally, what a lot of people normally think of as the mystery is the detective story, uh, which is really only a part of it. Uh, crime stories, suspense stories, psychological thrillers, uh, even espionage uh, are part of the mystery genre. Uh, but we'll focus today mainly on uh, detective stories. Um, and detective stories 
need a detective by definition, and but a detective needs something to detect, and he needs somebody to go after. And the person that he uh, generally, although nowadays it's also a she, uh, will go after tends to be a, a crook of some kind. It could be a villain. Um, generally, um, a villain is somebody that I would tend to define or describe as somebody uh, who acts with violence, who does uh, harm to people, who uh, kills people. Uh, most detective stories involve murder, and um, those, are, those are not rogues. Those are villains. Rogues are a, a lighter kind of crook. They're somebody who prefers to steal through con games, through uh, an act of uh, intelligence, uh, outsmarting somebody, whether it's at gambling or writing phony checks or engaged in some uh, nefarious scheme of one kind or another. Uh, generally, without serious harm to, uh, to the person uh, whom the, from whom they're stealing, uh, and frequently uh, in literature, in the mystery uh, genre, these rogues tend to steal from people who deserve to be stolen from. They've, they've either gotten their, uh, their wealth through uh, illicit means, uh, or they're just really nasty people, or they're unpleasant in some way. And so some roguish figure will come along and, uh, and do his best to, or her best, to, uh, to deprive them of uh, some of that wealth. Um, I'd like to start with uh, Raffles, who is my favorite fictional character outside of Sherlock Holmes. Uh, the, the Sherlock Holmes stories is what my first introduction, uh, well, you could only have uh, one introduction, so it's not a first introduction. It's an introduction that was redundant. I apologize. <laughs> Uh, I started reading uh, mystery fiction with Sherlock Holmes and uh, became quite an addict and, uh, and learned that there were only 56 stories and four novels about Sherlock Holmes, which broke my heart. Um, and so I looked for other Victorian detectives or mystery stories that would, uh, that would help keep that flowing, that kind of literature flowing and I discovered Raffles. Raffles was an amateur cracksman or gentleman jewel thief. Um, he dressed beautifully, he was a, a cricketer, but uh, hung out in wealthy um, society. Uh, almost is always portrayed wearing a tuxedo, uh, frequently a top hat, and uh, would, would steal generally as a f for, to, to help somebody else, to do something that uh, was good for somebody who needed it and generally taking from somebody who was bad. The, uh, the, the, the famous Robin Hood approach to, to criminal activity. He, uh, oh, I, I will say this, that uh, I have a bookshop and we do events in my bookshop um, and we always call them readings. Uh, but I, I always feel that if you're coming to my bookshop, chances are you can read and so, <laughs> And so I always discourage writers from reading. I, I suggest that they, that they talk about their book instead of reading from it, because everybody's perfectly capable of reading their own book. However, uh, 
I'm going to read a little bit. <laughs> Breaking my own rule, uh, but only in brief, brief places because generally uh, the, the author can describe a situation or a scene, uh, scene far more com comfortably and uh, colorfully than I can. Uh, so let me just, uh, just read you a, a paragraph about Raffles, um, his own explanation for why he has turned to crime, uh, finding excuses for, for being a criminal. He says, why settle down to some humdrum uh, activity? He once said, when excitement, romance, danger, and a decent living were all going begging together. Of course, it's very wrong, but we can't all be moralists, and the distribution of wealth is very wrong to begin with. <laughs> so he's, uh, he's, he's described why he's doing this. These are some uh, dust jackets of very early editions of, uh, of the Raffles stories. There were only three collections of short stories in one novel. They were frequently filmed. Uh, the Raffles became a very, very popular uh, figure for, for movies uh, because everybody likes to live vicariously uh, in, in a, this beautiful homes, uh, balls, fancy dress dinners, and so on. And uh, the first really important Raffles uh, on the screen was John Barrymore, uh, and here he is. Next was, uh, was Ronald Coleman, and who could be more suave than, than Ronald Coleman? Uh, and he, it's a, it's a really good, it's a really good movie, although it's old-fashioned in its way, of course, but so is the notion of uh, Gentleman Jewel Thieves being somewhat uh, old-fashioned. Uh, the next, uh, who's more, who could be more suave than Ronald Coleman? David Niven. <laughs> and he played Raffles, too. Um, on, on the right is a, a book that was, uh, was published with him on, with David Nivett on the cover, which was very common uh, for uh, publishers to do. They would take um, movie scenes and put them on the cover and sometimes even on the inside of the book uh, show scenes from the movies. Um, he had, Raffles, much, the, the stories were set, established very much like the Sherlock Holmes stories. Raffles had um, a, a sidekick named Bunny. Really. Uh, it's a poor man. I mean, he, he's grown up and everything, but he was called Bunny. And he is frequently, he is always referred, frequently referred to in the stories as Raffles' fag. Um, okay, you can have your little titter for, you know. Uh, it, it really was a phrase that meant that he was uh, an underclassman at the same school and was assigned to doing things for raffles, uh, which was co a common practice in uh, public schools, which really mean private schools. Somehow the Brits seem to find a different way of describing that. Um, one, th one thing interesting about the, uh, well, there are many interesting things about Raffles and the Raffles stories, but one thing that is uh, particularly interesting is that uh, the stories were written by E.W. Hornung, who you probably never heard of. Uh, he wrote a lot of other books which are unread today, uh, but the Raffles stories are still being read and they're still in print. But E.W. Hornung was the brother-in-law of Arthur Conan Doyle. Whoop. <laughs> 
of, of Arthur Conan Doyle. Um, Conan Doyle, for his many, many strengths, was not a man of light humor. And uh, uh, Hornung, it is said, uh, created the Raffles uh, character kind of to tweak uh, Conan Doyle's nose. Uh, that he that he had created the world's greatest detective. Well, I'm going to create the world's greatest criminal, and and that's what he did. Um, and as I've told a few several people over the years, I have a very large collection of mystery fiction. Uh, it's almost 60,000 volumes of first editions. Yes, it's ridiculous. I, <laughs> I'm quite willing to concede that immediately. Um, but the first book that went on the shelf is a copy of Raffles, the first edition of Raffles, inscribed from E.W. Horning to Arthur Conan Doyle. Yeah, it's just my, my, favorite, my favorite book. Um, so here's the, the most famous British uh, cracksman and, uh, and thief and rogue. Um, in America, the, uh, the equivalent was the infallible Godall. Uh, a character not very well known, I'm afraid. Frederick Irving Anderson created this character, and uh, and a wonderful character he is. He's very interesting uh, because he has never, not has he never been arrested, not has he never been convicted, he's never been suspected of a crime. And that is the greatest criminal uh, that you could possibly imagine. Just like the perfect murder is, is killing somebody and having it seem like an accident or a natural death so that there's no one suspected, the, um, the idea of being a criminal who was so brilliant that he was never suspected of a crime is, uh, is, is quite an achievement. His stories are told by a writer uh, in, within the story named Oliver Armistan, who would create these phenomenal, complex crimes uh, in impossible rooms to get into, impossible safes, well-guarded treasures and all of that. And he would write this, uh, th this very elaborate uh, break-in, this burglary uh, that was committed by a character that uh, was known as the infallible Godal. Well, the crimes were so perfect that the police could never solve them because they didn't know who Godal was. It was impossible for them to solve the crime. The, the crimes were so flawlessly planned that they wound up paying Armistan and Godal not to commit crimes. <laughs> that was... And Armistan, there was only one collection of stories. There was only one group of stories because the police uh, paid uh, him to stop writing and Godal to stop having committing crimes. It's all very logical. Um, now, the same author, that, and uh, an author that if you ever want to read really clever, really beautifully plotted stories uh, by an author that you've never heard of, although I don't think they're in print, uh, they, but probably uh, on a Kindle you can, you can find it. You can find everything on a Kindle nowadays. Um, the same author created a female uh, um, criminal who is very, very similar to uh, the infallible Godal. 
and her name is Sophie Lang. Sophie Lang was, um, as pretty much every female criminal was, was young, she was beautiful, uh, everybody liked her, she was not suspected of anything. Um, there was a, a series of films uh, about her. There were three movies uh, about Sophie Lang. And um, I want to tell you, I want to read a little section to you. Uh, again, you know, use breaking my own rule. But, you know, I'm, I'm in front of the mic, so I can kind of do what I want. Um, the, uh, the, the, the detective in the infallible Godal was uh, uh, Inspector Parr, and totally at his wit's end, could never catch Godal. Now he's got Sophie Lang, and he can't catch her either. He doesn't even know if there is such a character. Let me read this to you. Uh, this, is, this is Parr speaking. He said, did you ever hear, he's talking to somebody else, of course. Uh, did you ever hear of Sophie Lang? I suspect not. The public never hears of successful crooks. It, on, it, it is only when they fail, when we catch them, that they become notorious. Sophie has yet to stub her toe. We used to have a habit of assigning our bright young men to the Sophie Lang case. It was like sending a, a machinist's apprentice for a left-handed monkey wrench or, or a quart of auger holes. He laughed. So far as my bright young men are concerned, she was only a rumor. None of us ever saw her. We knew her only by her works. When we came a cropper, we'd say, that's Sophie. When something particularly slick was turned, Sophie again. She, uh, she appeared in three movies with Gertrude Michael. And the strange thing is, the movies were popular enough to have three of them. But the only volume of her short stories was published only in England, never in America. And there's, I have no explanation for that, and neither does anybody else, apparently. Um, in terms of female crooks, female rogues, the British had their own, and it was Foursquare Jane. Foursquare Jane is a wonderful character created by Edgar Wallace. Now, Edgar Wallace, uh, at one time, was by a wide margin the most successful writer in the world. There was a time in the 1920s and into the early 30s when one of every four books in the United Kingdom was written by Edgar Wallace. Of, of all the books sold, fiction, nonfiction, one-fourth, one 25% were written by Edgar Wallace. And one of the characters that he created was Foursquare Jane. Foursquare Jane was young, she was pretty, she had a gang of, of criminals who were devoted to her, who would do anything she wanted. Um, here's, here's how she is described, this, this heroine. She is extremely ladylike, an uncannily clever criminal, who exercises all her female cunning on her nefarious work, makes the mere male detectives and policemen who endeavor to be on her tracks look foolish. Jane is pretty, 
young, slim, chaste, and leaves her calling card at the scene of her robberies, a printed label with four squares and the letter J in the middle. She makes sure to do this so that none of the servants will be accused of the theft. She is a coterie of loyal associates on whom she calls as they are needed. So Foursquare Jane is the British equivalent of, um, of Sophie Lang, roguish, uh, steals in one, one story, steals a, a, an old master, replaces it with a copy, and when she is caught, uh, apparently with the, with the copy, she, we learn that, in fact, she replaced it again the night before, knowing that she was going to be suspected, and then steals it again. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, there's no getting around Foursquare Jane. But the British, um, British uh, female criminals are not all roguish. They're not all sweet, pretty young things. There's Madame Colucci. Madame Colucci, a name to be reckoned with. Madame Colucci uh, was, uh, appeared in a book called The Brotherhood of the Seven Kings by L.T. Mead. L.T. Mead is not well known anymore, uh, as is true of so many Victorian writers. Uh, but she wrote about 60 volumes of mystery, crime, detection, short stories and novels, but also 250 children's books, young adult books, uh, books for girls, for girls 12, 14, 16, that age group, 250 of them. Now, this particular book and the next one, which I will mention to you in a minute, was co-authored with somebody named Robert Eustace, also somebody you're unlikely to have heard of, but uh, Robert Eustace co-wrote books with at least a dozen other writers, most famously Dorothy Sayers. One of her novels was co-authored with You're Shaking Your Head. You know that book. Good for you. Um, <laughs> so, um, but what's strange is the, uh, the bindings of these books just show L.T. Mead's name. Poor, poor Robert Eustace. You know, he probably did most of the heavy lifting. He doesn't even get his name on the cover. He is on the title page, but not on the cover. Here, let me tell you a little about um, Madame Colucci. This is one of the most extraordinary characters, I think, in crime fiction. I, I am totally devoted to, to this character, although she is absolutely evil. <laughs> the story of my life. Ten years before these stories began, I fell a victim to the wiles and fascinations of a beautiful Italian, a scientist of no mean accomplishments herself, with beauty beyond that of ordinary mortals. Oh boy, I would have fallen for it too. She appeared not only to my she appealed not only to my head, but also to my heart. Dazzled by her beauty and intellect, she led me where she would her aims and ambitions, which in the false glamour she threw over, over them, I thought the loftiest in the world, became also mine. 
On a night never to be forgotten, I took part in a grotesque and horrible ceremony and became a member of her brotherhood. It was called the Brotherhood of the Seven Kings and dated its origins from one of the secret societies of the Middle Ages. In my first enthusiasm, enthusiasm, it seemed to me to embrace all the principles of true liberty. Catherine was its chief and queen. Almost immediately after my initiation, however, I made an appalling discovery. Suspicion pointed to the beautiful Italian as the instigator, if not the author, of a most terrible crime. Now that's, in an er that's the first story in the book. There are about six stories in the book. And the first crime was indeed terrible. They get worse. There's photos, there's illustrations of Madame Colucci, who is lovely and beautiful and Italian and all those things, but horrible, a horrible human being. And, you know, but it's fun reading about horrible human beings. <laughs> it may not be fun to be victimized by them, but there you are. Um, so, so L.T. Mead, uh, her name is Lily, L.T. Mead and uh, Robert Eustace then wrote about another villain, uh, Sarah, Madame Sarah. This, these illustrations are from the binding of the book. This, a kind of book publishing that is not done anymore these days. They're so, so fabulous. Um, so Madame Sarah, let me tell you a little about Madame Sarah. One of the most remarkable women I have ever met. She goes by the name of Madame Sarah. This is obviously the writer speaking in first person. He tells the stories first person. Says, a professional beautifier. That's her career. She claims the privilege of restoring youth to those who consult her. She also declares that she can make quite ugly people handsome. There is no doubt that she is very clever. She knows a little bit of everything and has wonderful recipes with regard to medicines, surgery, and dentistry. She is a most lovely woman herself, very fair with blue eyes, an innocent childlike manner, and quantities of rippling gold hair. She openly confesses that she is very much older than she appears. She looks about 25. One of the people who knew her claimed that she was at a party or a wedding party 30 years ago and looked exactly the same. So a woman with that kind of ability can do almost anything. Speaking of somebody who can do almost everything, almost anything, the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu. Now, we're in the world of real evil now. The Sax Romer, a man named Arthur Sarsfield Ward, who used the pseudonym Sax Romer, was writing an article about London's Limehouse, and, uh, which was the Chinese neighborhood. It was shortly after the Boxer Rebellions, and so a lot of British uh, citizens, a lot of, of Brits, 
were afraid that there was going to be some insurrection of Chinese, that they were going to be overrunning England and Europe uh, with their fanatical hordes, uh, killing people left and right. And so Saxe Romer uh, decided that he would take advantage of this and, um, and started writing about this character named uh, Fu Manchu, Dr. Fu Manchu. He had discovered when he was doing this article in Chinatown, uh, Limehouse, the London Chinatown, he discovered a man named Mr. King, who apparently had many of the tongues under his control, owned half of Chinatown, and uh, was almost unknown to the police, although it, it was said that pretty much all of the crimes that were being done in that neighborhood and slightly beyond were being done by Dr. Ki by this uh, Dr. King, and Romer used that character uh, to create Fu Manchu, and Fu Manchu's goal was world domination. That he wanted to have a uh, a large society, a large organization that would totally rule the world, and in a long series of books, starting in 1913 and going into the 19 60s, he wrote about all of these machinations of, of the insidious Dr. Fu Manchu uh, to take over the world, and only through the good graces of Dr. Petrie, a Scotland Yard inspector, was he foiled every time. <laughs> Fortunately, or we'd all be speaking Mandarin now. Um, these, these stories were so incredibly popular both in magazines and in books, that inevitably they became movies. And um, here is Boris Karloff as Fu Manchu. The, um, there, was, there were serials, there were full-length movies, uh, there was a television series, there was radio series, there were comic books and comic strips, all involving Fu Manchu. Um, in every live uh, portrayal of Fu Manchu, um, they never used an Asian actor. <laughs> it was the same as Charlie Chan. They never used a, an Asian actor to play Charlie Chan. They never used an Asian actor to play um, Fu Manchu. The, um, now, speaking of people who would do almost anything, in a, now we're talking about uh, all kinds of, I think we're past most of our uh, rogues. We're getting into the villainous area. Uh, we have Dracula. But what's interesting, you know, but here's the interesting thing about Dracula. We know what he did. He would attack people and bite into their necks and drink their blood. Okay. <laughs> That's not a nice thing to do. But he wasn't doing it to be evil. He was doing it to stay alive, to feed himself. That's, that's, how, that's how he ate, his, that's how he had his meals. So when he invited somebody, he said, I'd like to have you for dinner. <laughs> we, and we all now uh, associate Bela Lugosi with, uh, with Dracula from that famous 1931 movie. Uh, but in the books, he's actually tall and slim and has a mustache. He doesn't look anything like Bela Lugosi. Uh, but it doesn't matter. But here's my favorite, most evil character of all, Hannibal Lecter. 
in uh, Red Dragon, which was the first book that introduced uh, Hannibal Lecter, uh, which I regard as the greatest suspense novel ever written. He is uh, not the primary character, and it was the genius of the author to not use him too much, uh, so that when he appeared in that book, he would almost take your breath away because of the level of evil. Uh, they had, he had, in that book, he had been captured. Uh, he was in jail and uh, eventually escaped. That's, that's why there were more books. But he was there and he was shackled and he had a mask on and, uh, and everybody would uh, make him step back from the cell if they were putting his food there. There were nobody wanted to be close. Nobody was allowed to be close enough because he would ine inevitably try to do them harm. Um, and one day he was uh, complaining of being ill, and uh, he was brought to the infirmary, and they had to unshackle him to do that. And they had guards there, and everybody was paying very close attention to him. And as, uh, as we were told in the, in the book, the guard turned away for just a second, and, said, and the nurse managed to save most of her face. Hannibal Lecter was also known as Hannibal the Cannibal, uh, and he performed a lot of uh, really awful things with his teeth. On a slightly happier note, <laughs> we have Jimmy Valentine. Jimmy Valentine was the creation of O. Henry. He was a safe cracker, and um, because of the love of a, of a good woman, he gave up his career as a criminal and decided to go straight. And um, in the story, the, the story in which Jimmy Valentine appears, it's titled A Retrieved Reformation. He um, suddenly finds himself in a terrible situation. And the movie, there were many movies made of this on television as well as uh, movies, uh, all of which feature Jimmy Valentine, almost all of which had the same plot. The movie, there must have been six or seven versions of the same plot. And the plot is really quite simple. After he has given up this life of crime, a uh, detective has always suspected him but could never catch him. And suddenly a boy, a young boy, is locked in a safe. And he's going to die in that safe unless somebody can get him out. And the only person who can get him out is this master safe cracker, Jimmy Valentine. And the policeman is standing watching him to see what will happen. And if he does open that safe, he'll know that he's caught this safe cracker. Should I tell you what happens? <laughs> he, he does open the safe, and the policeman knows that, um, that he had to do it to save this boy's life. And he also knows that he is now reformed for the love of a good woman and, um, and is no longer a threat to society. Happy ending, isn't that nice? <laughs> Another safe cracker is Boston Blackie. Now, nobody's read this book, uh, but, and there's only one. There's only one book about Boston Blackie. But 
what a long series of successful movies, B-movies, black and white, starring Chester Morris. Uh, and the irony, of course, is Boston Blackie is a safe cracker. That you can see that from the from the book and from the dust jacket. There, there he is. He's a crook. In the Boston Blackie series, however, he's a detective. As is true of many of the uh, rogues that we've been talking about, uh, such as uh, Raffles in the later books, he still steals, but he also prevents other people from stealing. Um, and it works as a, uh, as a detective in several of those stories. Uh, Boston Blackie, too, is uh, uh, a, a fan of the Robin Hood uh, notion of, of thievery. He steals. He doesn't really consider himself a criminal. He's, he just regards himself as, as one person against society and the societal norms. So he's kind of a hippie. Uh, from the, in the 1920s, uh, he, he was a hippie before anybody else was. Uh, it became a very long-running series of movies with Chester Morris, um, and here he is. The uh, quite remarkable thing about this series of uh, the, these stories is that uh, they're all set in San Francisco, and <laughs> and and Boston has absolutely nothing to do with anything in in the entire book. Not a thing. How he became named Boston Blackie defeats me. It never comes up. No one ever says, how come you named Boston Blackie? Or, you know, didn't anybody think to ask that question? Yeah. Apparently not. Another wonderful rogue is the saint. Now this is a little more popular. I think more of you may have read a saint story or a saint book because that series went from the 1920s into the 1980s. Leslie Charteris was indefatigable writing stories about the saint. The saint was truly roguish. He was, he was a little bit like uh, James Bond in that he, not, not as a spy and not, he didn't have a license to kill, but almost every time we encounter the saint, he is saving a damsel in distress. You know, James Bond is always rescuing a woman of, of some kind in almost all of the books. And that was, uh, that's what the saint was doing on a very, very regular basis. Um, he was a thief, he, uh, but he also was a protector of the innocent um, and worked as a detective sometimes and frequently recovered uh, money that had been stolen, which he then returned to its rightful owner after taking a cut, of course. <laughs> Man's gotta live, you know. He uh, also appeared in a long run of wonderful movies. George, George Sanders played him frequently. Um, so did Warren Williams, so did George Sanders' brother, Tom Conway. George Sanders was such a suave, cool guy, great voice, um, committed suicide. He, uh, he said he was just bored, just bored, and, uh, and killed himself. Don't you love the happy stories that I tell you? <laughs> just, just it's just a little something to brighten your day. A little less serious is uh, Roger Moore, who played him on television, 118 uh, 
episodes of the Saint TV series. And the little halo used to uh, be drawn in whenever he'd put that smirkish little grin on his face showing how charming I am. Um, I, I, I have to say I did meet Roger Moore once and um, worked with a lot of people who knew him very well and unfailingly described as the nicest person you could ever meet, which is nice to know, because uh, we all kind of liked him. Yeah, you could not not like him, even though, of course, he was a crook. <laughs> Another, and he also, by the way, was a popular radio series, and comic strips that lasted for years and years and years featured the saint. He was, uh, he was really in pretty much every medium that you could could imagine uh, and endures. I think um, there is a plan underfoot to reissue all of the Saint books in paperback, so we'll get to read them again. They're, they're all great fun. They're not to be taken too seriously, uh, but they're great fun. Also not to be taken too seriously is Karmasan, written by Gerald Kirsch. Gerald Kirsch is largely forgotten, uh, although he's famous for Night and the City, which is a very dark book about the underworld of wrestling in, in London. Um, and, and the author himself was a professional wrestler and a bouncer and all of that. But he wrote a thousand short stories and he wrote a thousand articles and wrote numerous novels, including Fowler's End, which many people regard as one of the masterpieces of the 20th century, although very few people have been reading it lately. Uh, the series of stories about Karmasan are, are interesting because Karmasan has no money. He's, uh, he's always a little dowdy. His clothes are not exactly clean. Um, he's just one of these losers. But when he tells the story, he always tells a writer who's writing his, his adventures, uh, when he talks about his, uh, his escapades, he th has done things like stolen the crown jewels, um, stolen a million dollar diamond, stolen the jewels of Lady Ashworth or whoever. But he always borrows a cigarette to tell us this, as he tells the story. He doesn't have his own cigarettes. So he is generally known as either the world's greatest thief or the world's greatest liar. And you have to decide yourself as you read the stories. Now, I have to bring in John Archibald Dortmunder, uh, written by Donald Westlake, who is without question the funniest writer in the history of mystery fiction. There's Carl Hyacin, Elmore Leonard, a lot of other good, good, funny, humorous writers. Donald Westlake is in a class by himself. Dortmunder is a brilliant tactician in terms of creating the perfect crime. He is uh, the robbery, the scam, all of those things. He creates a beautiful scenario that cannot fail. He has a little gang with him. Kelp is one of them. Merch is another. And Tiny, who is a 300-pound guy. They're all part of the gang. And every plot, every story fails. <laughs> Not because of anything that he did wrong. Just things happen. They just happen. And he never knows why. He has this perfect scenario. 
and something goes wrong. In the hot rock, the, they steal a, uh, a priceless gem from the Brooklyn Museum and they're being chased and they lose it. It's taken away. They have to steal it again. And then they have to steal it again. And then they have to break into jail to get somebody out so they can steal it again. The, the movie with Redford was written by William Goldman and is so much fun as all of the Dortmunder books and stories are. And there is nothing more I can say about rogues once I've talk, talked about John Archibald Dortmunder. And I hope you've enjoyed this little, this little foray into the world of cr crime and criminals. Thanks very much. <laughs>